Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan. Today my guest for episode three is Bill Coor. Most everyone who plays golf knows of the old masters of golf design. Donald Ross, A.W. Tillinghast, C.B. McDonald's, Alistair McKenzie, and others, and how their courses are still influential and revered. Even though decades separate their eras, the team of Bill Coor and partner Ben Crenshaw have entered the same exalted temple. After all, Bach was composing music 50, 60, even 70 years before Beethoven was, but we regard them both almost contemporaneously now as titans of the classical era. If future generations are still playing golf, the designs of Korn Crenshaw will most likely slip easily in beside the work of the founding fathers of golf design. That's not just my opinion. The courses of Korn Crenshaw are nearly universally regarded by players and architects alike for their naturalness, playability, and sublime presentation. And they've worked on some of the most spectacular and ideal golf properties the world has seen in, well, 60 or 70 years. Their breakthrough was Sandhills, a spectacular course set in the vast landscape of unpopulated sand dunes that cover nearly the entire northwest quadrant of the state of Nebraska. When they were there, Corn Crenshaw identified, as Bill Corr has said in the past, uh, nearly 130 different holes throughout the vast property. They settled on 18 somehow, locating greens uh, in natural saddles and up on plateaus, basically seeding fairways as they lie, gouging out bunkers from the natural sand base soils, and then maybe installing some irrigation. It was a, an incredibly minimal way to design golf courses. And when it opened, it signaled a kind of reset for golf design. And players and architects reacted to it similarly to the way audiences must have reacted to seeing Bonnie and Clyde in the late 60s or the first time they heard Nirvana in the 1990s. Why have we been spending our time watching sappy musicals and boring westerns and massive biographical epics? Why have we been wasting our time listening to hair metal and soft synthetic pop? How did we get so far off track? Sandhill showed the golf world that there was a different way to design golf courses, a way that we'd forgotten. I'll speak to Bill Corr about this and many other things coming up. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You'd been traveling quite a bit, but you mentioned you're back at your home in Scottsdale now. At it made me think of something, you know, they say that football coaches' wives uh, have to be saints. They're, they only see their husbands about 10 months out of the year or so. Uh, golf architect wives must fall into that same category. Uh, is she, she must be pretty comfortable or at least uh, willing to have you away on the road so much. <laughs> well, Derek, she, Sue is definitely a saintly woman, but uh, she she has her own business too, Derek. So she travels... Um, not quite as much as I do, but a very similar amount each year and doing consulting work with a, a great deal, particularly with the hospitality industry. So she travels around the world with her business. So we do understand each other's, uh, you know, the difficulties with that. And yet at the same time, we sit down and we match schedules as much as we possibly can. So we're actually together much, much more than what people often think because she'll she will go with me whenever possible and and um, more than just a few times each year i go with her to some of her work as well so uh, through all through 21 years here we've uh, we've managed to figure out how that that works and and i have to say it works quite comfortably when you're traveling with her and going to places that aren't related to your job, are you looking at golf courses in those uh, cities and markets, or are you taking a step back? You know, Derek, most of the time I am not, unless there's unless there's a course that I particularly wanted to see 
and haven't seen either ever or for a long time. But, uh, you know, it's like, it's like any business, I guess, Derek, when you're around, it's, you know, so much. And, um, sometimes when you, when you have, you know, the, the quote days off, you, you like to get away. So, uh, I, I sort of, when I go with Sue, I enjoy the places and the amenities. I, I kid her or she kids me probably more that she, uh, you know, when we're building golf courses, Derek, it's often there are no real infrastructure established or anything else. Uh, you know, prime example, say, a, a, like at Streamsong Golf Resort down in Florida, you know, there was just almost nowhere to stay in because in, it was quite remote. And and so if there is, it's, it's usually very small, uh, you know, motel-type situations and things, which I have no issue with at all. But Sue's business takes her to... Uh, extremely uh, affluent and interesting and beautiful places with gorgeous infrastructure. And so she kids me a lot about that. She gets to stay at nicer places than I do. <laughs> and, she, and she would be correct in, in most cases there. Uh, but it's not always correct when we get to do a golf course where there's already an existing facility. So, But back to your question, I travel with her often and just enjoy the scenery and the and the, the places where we might be. So it's possible someday uh, some golfer out there maybe uh, bump into Bill Coor sitting by the pool with a pina colada in his hand? <laughs> well, you know, after all these years out in the sun, uh, Derek, I'm, I used to really love going to the pool or the beach. Not not quite so much anymore. Uh, maybe, maybe in the uh, spa perhaps, for perhaps a Kapalua. Yeah, perhaps a couple of Derek, you might see Sue and I out. But there you go. The, we do like pina coladas. Okay. <laughs> well, when I when I think about you and the courses that you've designed, I I often think about um, a story from the Wall Street Journal that John Paul Newport wrote about five years ago, and he talked about the way you route golf courses, how you'll go to a property and get to know it and walk it endlessly over and over and over again. And one of the things he wrote about in the article that you'll do is try to discern the movements of the animals that that live on that site it's one of the re, the ways that you tap into the rhythm and the natural flows of it's is trying to discern how animals might migrate uh, back and forth and so i always kind of think about you uh, channeling your animal spirit or becoming like one with the desert fox or the antelope could you describe <laughs> uh, that state of mind that you get in when you're really getting to know a, a property and thinking about how golf holes are going to exist on it well, Derek, I mean, it's, as we begin to study any piece of property, uh, Ben and I are both very old-fashioned and very technologically challenged when it comes to uh, the latest uh, abilities to survey properties, you know, with all sorts of computer, you know, uh, assets or uh, uh, technologies that would enable us to do it without physically spending so much time on the ground. We are both still on the ground type guys. And for me, Derek, to go, you know, if someone calls and says, would you come and explore the property, study it and see if it has potential for golf and potential to, to yield some some kind of a, a golf product that would be, you know, that we could all be proud of and then f- would fulfill the owner's goals, then it just simply starts off with going to that property and walking about and I just always believe that uh, if you go out to walk a property, obviously we have topo maps and things, but as you start to walk, you just need to get a sense of 
what everything looks like on the property. So when you're looking at the topo maps, you can you have a visual, a mental image of what what is actually out there on the ground, and not just looking at contour lines on a on a map. So um, through the years, Derek, yes, it's <laughs> always found that uh, you know creatures, <laughs> animals um, have through you know through their lifetimes and experiences on different properties have found the easiest way to traverse the landscape and that particularly applies if it's a if it's a landscape with uh, you know some serious elevation uh if it's totally flat even even still the the trails often lead you around wetlands and in situations that and the deer cattle sheep whatever uh different different creatures have ways of of traversing landscapes and finding their way to water finding their way to pastures finding their way to higher ground for you know for whatever the reasons but there are often trails and and when you're just first starting to explore a piece of property it's easier to walk through a trail than it is to walk through dense brush you know, and and uh, where you can't see anything, perhaps, or physically, uh, all but impossible to get through. So, yes, Derek, years ago, <laughs> I happened to make the comment that, just like I just made, that sometimes go start to follow trails, and uh, sometimes they're hiking trails that people, if humans, have been out there, but generally speaking, they're they're animal trails, and. That sort of took on a life of its own, Derek, and, and I actually had a young young man walk up to me a couple of weeks ago at our project in, in Branson, Missouri, and he said, Bill, I just want to confirm the, the rumor that I've heard that you go to properties and you pitch a tent and you live on the property and you follow the animal <laughs> trails to lay out the holes. And I said, you know, somehow this thing has taken on the life far beyond <laughs> what what it uh, what reality is. So no, I do not go pitch a tent, live out there on the land for days or weeks at a time, following animal trails. But I do, through the years, have found that it is interesting to in the initial stages to go walk on property, follow trails the way animals do traverse it, because they generally do not go up and down the steepest areas in vertical, you know, fashions. They they traverse it in often in the easiest, you know, fashion as how you would physically walk from point A to point B or C or whatever. And um and in the process, Derek, just Try to discover the most interesting aspects of the property, the features. What, what, uh, on any given piece of property, what are the most interesting physical features? And those may be contours, those may be rock outcroppings, they may be beautiful trees, they may be water features, you know, they could be any number of things, depending on the site. They may be an old, it may be an old quarry or something, uh, but make notations on the map of where the most interesting features are, and then start to put together a circulation pattern. Saying, if I were to go out here and just walk on this property, not really even thinking about playing golf at first, if I were to just go walk on the property and know that there were interesting features that I would like to see in my walk, how would I get to them? 
Uh, what kind of a circulation pattern would I create to get to them in the least physically taxing manner and and just have a nice walk about the property? And so we do start that way in, in the sense of identifying features, identifying a circulation pattern that enables you to travel about the property and and hopefully encounter those interesting features in the journey. At at that point, then, of course, from a golf standpoint, you start thinking about wind angles and sun angles and all these sorts of things as well. But you st- for us, Derek, it's establish a circulation pattern first and then start to break that pattern into into golf holes and uh in and see in, in whatever interesting fashion and hopefully showcasing the most interesting physical aspects of the property well now i'm sad i thought i was the first one that's ever going to ask you a follow-up question to that story <laughs> <laughs> my image of you has totally changed now i thought you were camping out there and just sleeping with the animals uh, what? Yeah, yeah, yes. No, I'm. Uh, <laughs> um, I spend a lot of time out there, and I have to. I have to candidly admit, I've encountered quite a quite a number of the of the the, the local inhabitants, so to speak, the creatures in my in my days of walking about. Some of which are not so uh, comfortable, <laughs> but uh, um, no, I do not pitch a tent out there, and uh, you know. You know, study the land right. by moonlight or something. <laughs> what's the What's the biggest animal that you ever encountered that you weren't expecting to find? The biggest, or the most dangerous? Oh, the biggest. Well, those are probably two different things. The The, the biggest is I walked up upon a a, a bull elk in uh, in in Colorado. And fortunately for me, when I say I walked up upon it, I, I walked up, I could have bumped into his rump because yeah. I pulled bushes back and he was standing right there. And fortunately for me, I guess the wind was, you know, was in the in our faces. And so he did not have any scent, I guess, that I was coming. Oh, wow. And when when I rustled the bushes, he actually just took a step forward, which was fortunate to me, too, because if he'd have kicked me, he'd have killed me. And, uh, it's no, it's uh, no good to goose a bull elk. Yeah, and uh, I backed up, backed up, and he and he wandered on off through the bush right there. But I literally never saw him. The bush bushes were very thick, and when I pulled the bushes back there, there his rump was, which was at least as high as my head. Wow. <laughs> so from the size standpoint, I'd say he he wins the thing from the. From the most dangerous standpoint, I don't, I don't, there, of course, there are poisonous snakes in, in some areas, and, you know, you definitely have encounters with those, so you, you try that, not to. That's but. one of the, the dangers of uh, having all these uh, great golf sites to design on. They're so undeveloped and rural, uh, you never know what you're going to find. It's not like you're out just on the edge of a city going through a, a piece of farmland. You, there's probably, you could wander into some human encampments that might be kind of dangerous and uncomfortable well it's interesting the most dangerous the closest i've ever come to to really not being here while walking a a site happened on the site when i was i was walking through and i came out of the bush just you know opened the bushes and stepped out into a tiny little clearing and there was a hunter 
there, bow and arrow hunter, mm-hmm. and he had his bow. He, he he had it drawn fully, straight at me. When I walked, he thought I was a deer coming oh, through the bush. And I stepped out there, and this guy, I looked at him. He looked at me, and he, I mean, he was about to let go. And all of a sudden, he, he stops, and he says, damn, man. He said, I almost killed you. <laughs> and you went, you went straight so, down to the hunting store and invested in a, a case of orange vests at that point. I didn't know, you know, you would if I had known that it was, I didn't know it was hunting season right then. I'd been up there like uh, the week or two weeks before, yeah. you know, and generally everybody tells you when it's hunting where, season. Where was this? You know, we're, we're certain, I'm certainly aware of that. Um, it was in the Northeast. Oh. <laughs> it was in Massachusetts, yeah. actually. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that may be the that that and the the tiger snakes in Australia. So, but yeah. you know, it's just part. What can I say, Derek? It's, it, I don't mean that to sound as dramatic as it, it does. Although it's pretty dramatic. No, at the moment. of course, architecture is but, life and life threatening. It's a, you're doing heroic work. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it heroic, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, when you are out for days wandering around on properties, and as you say, they're undeveloped properties, and oftentimes there's you know, there's been not very much uh, human activity there. And generally speaking, the only people who would have gone through some of these properties would have been hunters. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's something that's not that unusual. You you just uh, you encounter different sorts of, uh, shall we say, elements mm-hmm. to the property. Right. Well, one of the courses you worked on that just opened up uh, recently is Sand Valley up in uh, north central Wisconsin hard to believe that anybody who really follows golf hasn't been following this or heard about it right now, but that was a a really large uh, property. Is it, uh, I'm assuming it's very hard or more challenging to route a golf course uh, when you have, you know, 500, 400 acres than it is when you're confined to a smaller parcel. Can you talk about what you found when you went to Sound Valley? Did it, did the site compare to anything that you'd ever worked on before? What did it remind you of and what was the routing process like? Well, Derek, I mean, to your point that it's when you have a very large site, it's it's more difficult. It's certainly more uh, time-consuming and, and difficult in the sense that you have to start to just select an area of the property. That that occurred at Sand Valley. Of course, it occurred, say, at Sand Hills in Nebraska, where we had 8,100 acres, you know, to choose from. So the first thing you have to do is start to narrow down the the, the choice of area. So you have to spend, the, you know, enough time studying the entire property to, to, to then start to narrow it to say, I actually believe this is the parcel or the part of the property that we would like to work with. Now, that that involves... You know, if there are developers involved or if there are other uses for the property other than just golf, then obviously there there are other parameters to be considered. Other, um, you know, there are just a lot of other things that may drive the decision of where the golf is going to be. But if it's a pure golf thing like Sand Valley, yes, you have this, you have this giant maps and you go, well, there's about eight different places you could build big enough to build a golf course on out here. So which one, if we, if we start, where do we want to start? And of course, Mike Kaiser 
Mike being Mike, he just says, I want you to find the most interesting land, what you think is the most interesting land for the, you know, for the course you want to build. And it needs to be really good, Bill. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, um, in the case of Sand Valley, Craig Haltom, who had been the, the man who had discovered that property, uh, he had searched for sand sites in Wisconsin, and he had he had actually found the property and and then gotten in contact with Mike about uh, developing it. So Craig had spent an inordinate amount of time on that site. And, you know, I was able to go to Craig, and Craig's a good golfer, but he's also extremely well-versed in golf architecture and maintenance of courses and uh, and golf course construction. And so I said, Craig, what's your favorite parts of this site? So instead of my having to physically go walk over, you know, I've forgotten how many how many acres was there, but it was a large, large parcel. And Craig said, well, this is this and this is this. And he, he literally took me around to different areas within the overall property. And through that process, was able to come back and I just said, Mike, Craig, this just think for me personally, and I think Ben would agree with this, that this just seems to be land that we could work with perhaps better than some of the even bigger dunes and, and hill sand hills and valleys. And so if if you're asking us to do the first course, we I think we would choose this area to begin. And and that's pretty much how it how it went. So we we chose some of the area, Derek, that had had some very large elevations in it in terms of dunes and valleys, but not the biggest on the property. So our course sort of travels between uh, dunes and ridges and, and valleys and, and uh, contours that are some, you know, quite dramatic and probably with 50 feet of elevation change and others very subtle, you know, with two feet or three feet of elevation change. So we tried to blend those together, but it was different. Sand Valley was a different site, Derek. It was it was not like the Sand Hills. It was not like uh, Barn Boogle Dunes in Australia, you know, Lost Farm where we'd worked. It wasn't like Cabot Cliffs. It wasn't like uh, Friar's Head or other dunes properties. Uh, you know, Streamsong had dunes and and. Right. On it, albeit man-made many years ago in the mining process, but Sand Valley was more than anything it was a series of large sand ridges and dune-type features. Not so much choppy dunes, but ridges and valleys. So it's aptly named, and but it's pure sand. And uh, you know, we again we just tried to pick the the part of the overall property that we felt like. We believe we could do something interesting mm-hmm. here, and then there's going to be much more dramatic ground in other areas. David David Kidd's the second course that David's doing there now uh, is actually on uh, much more dramatic in terms of elevation changes and things property than, than than the first course. But but that again was the goal is if you have two, three, four golf courses, something like abandoned dunes, they all have the ability inherently to be different and i think that's what you'll see over a period of time that has sand valley evolved 
I heard in another podcast that Mike Kaiser, uh, he described the Sand Valley property as a kind of a cross in his mind between Pine Valley and Sunningdale. That's pretty, that's setting a pretty high mark. Uh, did you, and you mentioned before he told you to, you know, to make the routing good. You've got this, these great landscapes. How do you feel pressure to live up to the expectations and do the, those expectations grow with each project that you get, especially as you continue to work with Mike Kaiser? Well, Derek, I mean, Mike is so unbelievable. He and his 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 entire family, who's who's so supportive of these endeavors, and his sons Michael and Chris, uh, you know, who were so extremely involved at Sand Valley, and uh, in in terms of uh, directing the projects and and the operations. So we've we've been so fortunate to work with them. Three years, I, I almost, I kind of feel a little guilty at times that you know we get these. Those folks have provided us opportunities to work with some so many special sites and and. Uh, but as I told Mike last year, I think it's a Mike. What can I say? We'll follow you anywhere. Why not? <laughs> so, if you, if you give us the opportunity. We'll follow you anywhere. And, uh, it's like one of the, but it, the um, great, you know, uh, reminds me of like the great uh, teams like in Hollywood, you know, like uh, Scorsese and, and De Niro or John Ford and John Wayne working together. You know, if it's working, why yeah. why not continue? Oh, it's it's just unbelievable. I mean, when you're given opportunities and fights like that, Derek, that are so gifted, so special. And uh, you ask, was there, you know, a sense of uh, pressure or... Uh, you know, concern going into those, there absolutely is. There absolutely is. I mean, um, I think of, of Mike uh, at Sand Valley and the two of us standing there one day and we were getting ready to, you know, we we're about to begin the construction of the first course. And I, I made some comment to Mike about Mike, it's a expansive property. You've got opportunities for other courses and, you know, how do you see this? Would it be a second or a third or course or, or something like that? And he just looked at me, Derek, and he says, well, Bill, it depends. He said, if the first course is not very good, there won't be a second course or a third course. <laughs> I've I've only got millions of dollars riding on you, Bill. You, yeah, you can yeah. Go. And so you go, oh, okay. <laughs> I get the picture. And... uh but it's you know people people say Derek that uh, for example Sandhills in Nebraska Ben and I both get uh, people on a on a regular basis come up to us and say that must have been so much fun that must have been so much fun building that designing that and building it and Derek it was so extraordinarily rewarding we were so so unbelievably fortunate that Dick Young Young's cap gave us that opportunity to work with that site. But I truthfully can't say it was fun. It was interesting beyond measure, and it was challenging with the wind and the sand blowing and everything else. But one of the, one of the things that was an ever-present uh, concern, I guess you might say, or pressure, I think, as you put it, was the fact that we knew the potential of the site. And we knew going in that if we did not create one of the world's truly outstanding golf courses, we failed. It was that simple. Mm -hmm. 
And and if you didn't in that remote location, so so far away from metropolitan areas and what people would think of as the great areas for golf architecture and that sort of thing, so far away, we just felt like anything less than something truly truly special is going to it's going to be a failure and it's going to be a, you know. It will not be a, we would not have lived up to the potential for the site or the faith that Dick Young's cap had in us to work with that site and and to go so far out there and build that you know that the the project that most people who looked at it thought it was pure folly. Mm-hmm. So it is if you're given a site, I mean we're you know, right now, Derek, we're awaiting and, and hope to know by the end of the year, but whether or not we'll be able to, to work in in Scotland, two and a half miles down the coast or up the coast from, from Dornick and on a truly, truly special site along the sea and, you know, it would certainly be a dream come true and, and whether or not that's going to be approved, we don't know, but it's a similar type thing. You just... It'd be such an honor and such a uh, just such an incredible opportunity, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to carry with it the weight of the mission. To design, you know, on true Lynxland in Scotland, I mean, you're you're playing for history on that one. You know, that's kind of a, another level of. From there, there's not a higher place to go. And and tell tell the listeners what this project's called. Well, it's the name of the project, Derek, is Cool C O U L Lynx. And that's actually the name of the farm yeah. that's been there for, for many, many years. And uh, if you look on a map, like a road map of uh, the highlands of Scotland, it actually says cool links. You know, in Scotland, dunes land that's, that's not cultivated and not used, you know, between the sea and the agricultural or the developmental properties is is known as links. So if you look on a map now or would have looked on the map for many years past, it would have said cool links. And no golf course there, but we hope that uh we hope that you've got, not, you've got the, in name the not already. too distant future there will be. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> if you get a chance to to build cool links, the design method that you and, and Ben Crenshaw use is disturb as little land as possible and, and try to coax a golf course and the features out of the earth using as much as already is in existence. Thinking ahead to building in Scotland on the coast, would you uh, do something tr- more traditionally Scottish, like revetted bunkers, or have you gotten to that point in your thinking about how you might take how you apply golf course design to uh, traditional links style design in Scotland? Well, Derek, uh, we have we've had conversation, and, and the decision's not been made. But uh, uh, generally, of course, people think of the uh, you know the revetted bunkers and. I've I've talked to some different superintendents in Scotland and Ireland, you know, about that, and uh, as opposed to say the Royal County Down type bunkers that uh, a little more of the natural, not big, expansive blowout bunkers like you would see at Sand Hills or Stream Song or you know Barn Bugle or someplace like that, but uh, you would more the the smaller pockets that with old eroded edges and heather and and uh, that sort of thing, lining them. And part of the property, Derek, it's interesting. The property sits on a high bench, kind of like Royal Dornick, and then drops down into the dunes along the sea. And so 
part of the properties on the upper bench, part of the properties down in the in the you know the dunes land between the bench and the and the sea. Part of it backs up against the primary dune out at the water, out at the at sea, and. When you're there, you feel like you're a little bit at a Royal Port Rush, where the, some of the holes back up against the primary dune. When you're standing there, you don't physically see the water because the dune, you know, you're tucked down in behind the dune. As you walk up on the dune, you do see the water and then come back. And but parts of Cool Links is is heather covered dunes uh, as well, very well reminiscent of Royal County Downs. So when you look at those, you say, okay, this is not the, the quintessential, classic, low, rumpling dunes, you know, links land like St. Andrews or, or Muirfield or something that that you might instantly think of revetted bunkers. Uh, this this has some some different aspects that uh, I think you could make a case either way, Derek. And the decision has not been made, but we'll see as as we go forward. Right. But it's it's a very interesting site with uh, with different elements to it. You mentioned uh, getting into this Sand Hills project a minute ago. I wonder if we could go back for a second. Uh, you grew up in in North Carolina. What did your parents do? Well, I was raised by my mother, Derek, a single single mom <laughs> working two jobs in a man's world. So it was. Uh, uh, I was fortunate in in so many ways. I mean, just observing that whole process. You 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 know you think back to that was in the uh, when I was a kid growing up in the in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, you know, in 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 the South and in. Uh, just in in America in that time period, it was an amazing time, but it was also a challenging time. And it was a, you know, for me, it was watching a single mother try to try to make her way, navigate her way through through a man's world was a, was interesting as well. And so I won't get into all that, Derek, but it uh, I. Uh, I was raised by my mother. She did not play golf. She, quite frankly, didn't have time for much of any uh, enjoyable activity other than working. But she she enabled me and encouraged me to uh, you know undertake whatever activities I I wanted to try. She just she would just always say, "Well, if you want to do this or you want to do that, how how do you get to be really good at it? How do you you know at least make your best effort at it?" And so she would encourage me to go play golf. My next, well, I can't call it my next door neighbor. I guess we live way out in the country in North Carolina, but my closest neighbor uh, played golf. And so he's the one who introduced me, you know, as a young person to caddying, <laughs> first of all, and then hitting balls in the in the, in the field between you know, or between his yard and our yard, and then out into the field we'd make up. Uh, uh, sort of little course areas that you'd hit and play to the mailbox or play to a tree or who could hit the trunk of the tree, who could do this or that, you know, first. So he gave me clubs and we would, we would go do that. And then I would caddy for him. And then he's the person who, who took me uh, to caddy for him first, but down at Pinehurst. And then later on, he and I would, and, and other people would go play there. So, uh, uh, my introduction to golf came through my neighbor, but my mother was the one who uh, 
enabled it all to happen by just being encouraging toward that. Yeah, when you were a boy, did did you do you remember what you wanted to be going forward, or was was golf in? Did you think golf was going to be in your future at that age? Oh, I don't. I, not when I didn't really play much golf until I was uh, like a. a uh, Oh, probably the ninth grade in school. I, I I would caddy for my neighbor, and I'd hit balls and things with him around. But uh, to say we we grew up in, in, or that I grew up in a non-affluent environment would be a massive understatement, Derek. So it's, uh, um, you know, there just wasn't there just yeah, wasn't I can imagine golf, money golf to be able to distant, go. Yeah. Yeah, but but I was exposed to it, mm-hmm. and uh, so she, you know, my mother would just say, "I think you should go play golf. What do you want to do?" And I'd come home, I'd come home with the craziest ideas. I'd come home when I was a kid. I was going to be an astronaut. I was going to be a major league baseball player. I was going to be a basketball player. Of I was going to be a, you know, I was going to be whatever it was. Probably that I had seen on television that would. Uh, you know, that would pique my, get my attention. And, and she was always incredible. She would just say, okay. She never said, that's never going to happen. You know, she didn't, she never said that. She just said, okay, if that's what you want to do, how do you become that? What do you need to study or what do you need to practice to be able to do that? So I was, I was, you know, I, I was encouraged in many different directions, most of which, of course, was never, <laughs> never going to happen. But she never said, no, that will never happen. She said, you can do it. Just figure out what it is you want to do it, do, and then make an effort at it. But it wasn't, you know, Derek, I, once I started playing, uh, I played every sport seemed like they had a ball connected to it, you know, when I was a kid and stuff and, and through, through high school. But, uh, uh, once I started playing golf uh, more and more, I really, I really did enjoy it. I really got into it, and I particularly enjoyed the courses. And I didn't know why. I wasn't like I was really studying them. I just, I just enjoyed being out there. And maybe that comes from being a kid who grew up way out in the country and wandering about with a dog. You know, I don't know. It was just another walking about golf courses was another journey in nature to me. And I, and I enjoyed it, and and after being exposed to courses, well, like Pinehurst Number Two, and then then when I was at Wake Forest at, in school and college, uh, Old Town Club in Winston Salem. When you're when you're exposed to architecture like that, you really do start to think about why do I like these courses better. And and then then so many other courses I see, and you start to actually think about it in a more organized fashion. So, um, but even even when I was in you know in university, Derek, I was I'd never thought about doing what I'm doing. I, <laughs> I was uh, I was actually I enjoyed school and I enjoyed golf, and I was actually thinking I might. Someday be a, a university professor and play a bit of amateur golf, and uh, uh, as it turn, didn't turn out that way, obviously. But uh, when I graduated from college, uh, Uncle Sam decided that I should, uh, uh, you know, join him, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I he t- took I that decision into his own and, hands, not yours. 
Yes, exactly. Your friends and neighbors. <laughs> so, uh, so I did, and and that was another, obviously extraordinary, interesting, and not always pleasant, but uh, by any means. But uh, you know, we could save those stories for another podcast if you'd like. We could do this again sometimes yeah, and yeah. fill up an hour with that. Yeah, no, I'm not gonna get not getting into that. Yeah. So anyway, but when I got out. Just as I was getting out of the military, I did. Pete Dye was doing a course near my home in North Carolina, Oak Hollow Public Golf Course, and I didn't know who Pete Dye was. I never, never heard of Pete Dye. It was right at the time he had just finished Harvard, you know, town, and they were they started to play the tournament there. And, but I liked what I saw. It was different, and I thought, I'm single. I wonder how you do this. I'm either going to go to graduate school or maybe I'll. Maybe I'd just like to see how you do this. How do you build one of these things? And uh, so I badgered Pete until he gave me a job. And as they say, the rest is history. Circuitous journey, but here we are today. In your biography, anyway, uh, finds you moving to Texas to help with construction of another golf course. Um, Tell me about your time in Texas and what the next step was uh, on your journey. Well, when I, I didn't work with Pete that long, I mean, it was uh, the oil embargo came in, you know, 1974. I started with Pete in 72, Pete and Alice and their, their group. And I started to say at the bottom, that's an understatement, too, just a labor, you know. And uh, and then it became an equipment operator and one thing or another. But uh, I was around Pete enough, and he and Alice and, and uh John Gray particularly ran projects that I worked on for Pete. They allowed me to, even though I was the lowest on the low scale, they they allowed me to walk around when they were talking about decisions they were making with the golf courses. So I was exposed to it. And then Pete sent me to work with his brother, Roy Dye, uh, who had built a course in Texas. And I came to Texas you know, with Roy, and the course was almost finished but not quite and then I helped with them to finish the construction when the oil embargo came the golf course construction business shut down you know I don't Derek you're too young to remember but the the long long lines of people at at gas stations couldn't get gas couldn't get diesel fuel you know golf course construction business shut down basically so I ended up uh, actually working on the maintenance crew uh, in Texas, where Roy had sent me, and then became the superintendent of the course. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't set out to be a superintendent, and yet I did that for about six years, and it was one of the absolute best things that ever happened to me. Gave me insights that uh, were invaluable, and that particularly toward what I'm doing today. And uh, and it was then that. A project manager gave me a chance to design a golf course, and I did. And then, <laughs> skipping quickly down the, the stones in the stream here, they uh, that was the course that Ben then saw or heard about and wanted to see. And a potential client got he and I together, and hoping we'd work together, and we didn't. But we became friends, and then later decided we we would work together. And that was that was thirty one years ago, yeah. Derek. It sounds like uh, a really fortuitous journey. It goes against my idea of you sitting in Texas at Waterwood uh, National, you know, plotting your ascendance into the heights of golf course architecture. Uh, so are you 
going to tell us that you didn't plan all this? This wasn't in your grand scheme to ultimately finish maybe at Cool Links in Scotland from Texas? <laughs> I wish I could tell you I did, Derek. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in 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 many ways. I'm I'm uh, well. I'm I'm such a huge fan of Tom Doak and and uh, the work that he and the guys do. And and I've known Tom. Well, I've known Gil Hans too as long as both of them as long as since he's been out of Cornell. But uh, I've watched Tom, for example, so analytically go about his his work and but his career and almost like a pilot with a checklist check 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 you know is this done is this done is this done and and tom is very analytical you know just by nature and i'm i'm almost at the opposite end of the spectrum derek i i wish i could say i had planned it and that i had that this is all the results of some wonderful scheme that I had, you know, that I had put forth many years ago, but it's not, it's not. I, I never, I never dreamed of being in this business when, when I was, even when I was in college, I didn't, I never thought about being in this business. Um, I never thought about being a golf course superintendent and I never, I never, I never just, I could never, I don't think I've foreseen this, uh, Derek. I mean, I, you know, when you're in deep East Texas as a golf course superintendent and you're not exactly in what I'd call the, uh, the heart of, of golf architecture, you know, they dealing from the bottom of the deck. When you're there, you just, yeah, you just didn't see, you know, it wasn't, by the time I was a superintendent, I knew I would love to be in the golf design business because I had, I'd begun, I had for a number of years, it studied it very enthusiastically. And, um, uh, but I, the odds of my thinking it could happen, I don't know. It was, it was truly when the project manager where I worked as a superintendent came to me one day, he said, Bill, I know you've, he said, I know, truthfully, you'd like to be in the golf course design business. And I know some people down on the coast of, of the Gulf Coast of Texas that uh, that need a golf course architect. They don't have, have an extremely low budget and everything else, but they need somebody to help them. And he took me down there and introduced me to them. And and these folks, for, for reasons that I, I won't go into necessarily, Derek, but Primary, they were in a bind at the time, and they need somebody to do it and do it quickly. And so I said, "Okay, I'll do this." And you know, that led to the course being done and some people seeing it and saying, "Hey, this is pretty interesting." Which then led to, you know, somebody seeing it who thought Ben should see it, and somebody seeing it who thought Ben and I should work together. And it, but it's not because of a of the pilot's checklist of my setting out saying, if I want to be at this position in the future, I need to do this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I have such admiration for Tom or Robert Trent Jones senior mm -hmm. who, who started all that, who said, I'm going to be in the profession of golf architecture. And this is, I'm going to study this. I'm going to make my own, uh, field of studies at Cornell, and this is how I'm going to accomplish this goal. Mine has been, 
I have to admit, it's been a little more like the chip that was thrown in the stream and it bumbles its way down, you know, bounces off this bank and that bank and, and, and yet somehow gets, you know, gets down the stream. When when you build this first golf course, do you have something similar to your to the design aesthetic and approach to golf course design that you have now, or did it take time to develop those those thoughts and theories and applications? Well, when I was when I worked with Pete, uh, Pete and Alice had quite an extensive golf library, as you might imagine, and um, I, I was so low on the totem pole when I worked with them, Derek, that. Sometimes they would go away and they would take me off the construction job at Johns Island in Florida where they were building a course and have me go to their home in Delray Beach and babysit their two German shepherds while they were gone. So it proves that in and of itself pretty much says I wasn't exactly the most valuable guy on the project. But in the process, just like we're talking about these odd things that happen in the process of, of being in their home when they were gone, I would rummage through these golf architecture books and they had quite a collection of them and I would read them. I'd make notes and I would study them. Only years later did I find out that those were the same books that Ben had been reading through the years. And, uh, uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's just <laughs> somehow, Somehow it all comes together, but uh, it's been an incredible journey. I will say that, and hopefully it continues. You mentioned um, Tom Doak and Gil Hans, and you and them and Mike DeVries and maybe a couple other people sort of operate these days on their on your own kind of branch at the top of the tree, uh, the names and the, the companies that, that get these uh, really great sites around the world. Uh, it's really a remarkable time in golf course architecture. How competitive are you with those guys? Uh, do you do you bid against them on jobs, or do you look at it as a competition? I think I know what you're going to say, but I have to ask that question: Is it a is it a competitive field from your point of view? Well, I think I think it is, and it's in the in the most positive way you can use that term, competitive. I think it's uh, it, I think it's a mutual admiration society, so to speak, and. Uh, I, I I just very candidly and easily easily can say to any person that we we go to to if we're asked to to study a site or or can be considered and they say we're talking to Tom we're talking to Gil we're talking well Mike we're talking to you know any a, a, a number of of other design companies it is extremely easy for me. Personally, you know, Derek, to just say you cannot go wrong. Any person of that group you hire, you cannot go wrong. And but since you know, you mentioned Tom and Gill specifically, um, I'm just such an admirer of their work, and I and I like them both personally so much. And uh, we're all somewhat different personalities, but yes, there's a sense of all right, Tom, I know you're going to be there, and Gil, I know you're going to be there. And, you know, if the, if the, if the client picks us, it's both, okay, that's, that's good. And at the same time, a little bit, you know, I don't want to say awkward, but it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, they would have done just as good or maybe even better. 
And and there are times you look at some sites and you just go, you know, quite frankly, Tom's better at this. He would be better. Gil would be better at this. And I'm sure we all sit around and, you know, try to compare our work to to each other, but but it's not a there's a, there's certainly not not a single negative aspect to that competition, Derek. It's uh, I am so happy for Tom and Gil and, and people with great talent. Rod Whitman, the Canadian architect, when he finally got his opportunity at Cabot Lake, mm-hmm. which again was due to Mike Kaiser, but we Ben and I both, we were so happy. And we're I mean, we we simply <laughs> We we celebrate almost to an extent when one of those guys gets the job because we know how as good it's going to be. It elevates the game, and when if we don't get the job and they do, we know it's going to be extremely good, and we're going to go study it, and we're going to go study it and and look at it from the perspective: what did they do that we might have done differently, and can we learn something from this? So it's a it's it's a competitive situation and yet one that I think is almost spirals upward in the most positive way. It elevates us all. Mm-hmm. What are what so, are one or two of the most uh, impressive courses you've seen from from your compatriots in the design business? What are what's something that you really that really got your attention that you've seen? And you get to you know because of the way these properties are, you you get to often work almost alongside of these some of these people as they're just beginning or just finishing their courses? Well, um, uh, I'll just, I'll just focus in here again on Tom, Tom Doe, just cause I could answer, I can relate both those things very, very quickly to you or very easily to you, Derek. Uh, the, the first time I went out and walked Pacific dunes, um, I've always believed and I have to, I'll have to describe the set the stage for this just a bit. Ben and I happen to think we're prejudiced. We happen to think the guys that work with us are the absolute best, the absolute best at creating interesting features on the ground and everything. So we are so grateful for the guys that work with us and their talent. Now, having said that, the first time I walked Pacific Dunes, I walked off that golf course thinking, in our best day, at our absolute best, could we have done this? And there's doubt. Mm-hmm. That That's the way I, I was asked some years ago, I guess, Derek, about how would you define greatness in a golf course? And that's a very, that can come across as being egotistical. And I don't mean it that way at all. It's just we have such confidence in the people we work with that when for me, when I walk off a golf course, whether it's a, a, a newer one like Pacific Dunes or, or a classic one of, of many, many, many years ago, when I walk off and go, how did they do that? How did they come up with that? Could we ever have done something that good? And you doubt it. You go, wow, maybe. We either have to have been at the absolute best of our games and been thinking outside the box and this, you know. So when I see stuff like that, and I and I have seen, you know, particularly in recent years, you know, a number of 
courses like that. I'm talking about newer courses. You used to see a lot of older ones like that. I've seen newer ones, but the, the instance that, say, at Pacific Dunes was a prime example. And then to be able to go to Streamsong, when we did the two courses there, Tom Doak and, and uh, Bruce Hepner and the guys that work in Renaissance Golf, work, you know, they were building the, the uh, blue course at the exact same time, simultaneously with us doing the red course. And, and Tom and I literally walked that ground together and laid the holes out together. We both started off to lay out our, we both liked the same ground. <laughs> which is where the red and blue courses are, stream song. We both wanted that same ground, even though they had thousands of acres there. And so Tom laid out his course, I laid out a course, and neither one of us were particularly happy with the routings, the preliminary routings we had done. And he and I saw each other. We were out there one day at the same time, and we saw each other, and Tom goes, "You are you happy with your, your routing? I go, Tom, I think it's, I'll be candid. I think it's wasteful. I think I've wasted too much good ground here. And I, he goes, I'm not particularly happy with mine either. From that point on, Derek, we said, all right, let's go walk about. You show me some holes you've seen. I'll show you some I've seen. Let's, let's. And we physically walked around that property. And we would mark on a, on the map where, where holes were. And then... Uh, uh, Tom's actually the one that took all our holes that we had. He took them back to his office, and he put them together into two 18-hole routing, two 18-hole courses. He sent it back to me. So, what do you think about this? And we went back and forth to that a couple of times, and and we finally settled on, you know, okay, here are two 18-hole courses. We didn't know who was going to do which one because we had literally <laughs> laid out the holes and and the courses together. So that was a fascinating thing. I've never done it before. I don't know that it would ever happen again. Uh, I don't think Tom's ever done that before. So, but it was very, very interesting and interesting just to observe how he went about things as opposed to how I personally went about things, walking about property and envisioning golf. Right. It's at Streamsong in particular, uh, within that parcel that you both liked where, where uh, most of the topography is, were you attracted to the same particular hole areas, or did did you like certain parts and he liked certain parts? Because on the red course, you know, there's that great run from seven around the outer eastern rim, really up through twelve, which is kind of it's almost like an outback area. Is that something that you were attracted to more than Tom? That those edge areas, because they're a little different than the stuff that's in the middle of the property with the with the dunesy character. Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, Derek, the, the way it worked out, uh, we would kid each other. I, I, well, I probably kidded Tom and his guys a little more than he did me. But anyway, I would I would oftentimes walk over and look when they were working on one of the holes because, I mean, we'd be building holes almost side by side. And I'd walk over sometimes and go, now, guys, don't mess this up. This is my hole. I picked this hole. It's on your course, but I picked this hole. <laughs> and, and and Tom, I'm sure, felt the same way because that that loop you're just talking about there, Derek, number seven, eight, and nine were holes that were interesting holes based on the natural configurations of the ground. Um, number 10 11 and 12 were actually, and 
well, 13 was different on times, but 10, 11, and 12 were holes that Tom had picked out and had on his, a routing he had at one time. So uh, I had a routing that went up more toward nine and then came back toward where Tom's 17, right. 18, mm-hmm. back there. And and Tom had, he was looping outside of where, because I had started, I guess, just a, a little bit before Tom studying the ground lanes and stuff. So he looped outside. So he was like 10, 11, 12. And so when we're we're putting this all together, I think, okay, we'll take these holes, put this, these, those, those. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's just a, it's a combination of, I could walk out there and walk through the holes and say, well, this is Tom's, <laughs> you know, it's on our course, but I hope he's happy. <laughs> and then I could walk on his course and go, well, this was our hole, but uh, they did a pretty darn good job with this. <laughs> okay, you now know? be honest. How many, how many often did you see him ruin, just completely ruin your idea for a hole there? <laughs> <laughs> zero. <laughs> yeah, zero. <laughs> zero. It may have turned out a bit differently, you know, in, in some ways than than I might have have been envisioned and and but uh is uh, you know it was it was never never was there a time i walked out here and go what the heck are you doing yeah what are you doing here you're just messing this up i mean tom came to me one day you talk about how analytical he is Derek. he came to me one day when we were out there and we'd been out there for a little i don't know how many a lot of days wandering around and he finally walked over, and Tom's not a man of, you know, he's, loquacious would not be an adjective that would fit Tom. But he he just said, Bill, I finally figured it out. I go, what's that, Tom? He said, I figured it out. You pick green sites where you like to fill and then sculpt. He said, I pick green sites where we cut and sculpt. And I hadn't thought about it either. You know, in that, from that perspective, Derek, and I started thinking about it. He's absolutely right. He, cra- <laughs> so, he cracked the code. We've all been, Tom. we've all that's been trying Tom. to figure I mean, that out. You know, <laughs> but that's Tom. He's so analytical, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Bill, um, I, I don't want to take you away from too much more time from, from your wife and your, and your day off. Um, but a couple more things. One of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, given the, uh, spectacular, and as I said earlier, some of the unprecedented in the last, you know, I don't know, 60, 70 years, some of these golf sites you've had, like Cabot Cliffs and Lost Farm, and we've talked about Sand Valley and Sand Hills, Friars Head. Uh, my question was was going to be, don't you ever get tired of, you know, running out of ideas or working on these spectacular sites? Uh, but I looked through, you know, some of your recent projects are on properties that, that don't necessarily resemble that, um, going back to Trinity Forest, which was a old dumping grounds and um you recently worked at uh, farmington country club uh, doing some work on some existing holes and the ridge course at buffalo ridge it looks like that site has a lot of a tremendous amount of movement maybe there's some challenges there is this just the way the cycle works is is that uh you happen to have some of these non uh mouth-watering golf sites coming in into your portfolio right now well it's it's that's actually not uh, unusual for us, Derek. I, I know that the perception exists that we get all these extraordinary sites, and we do. 
but we've also worked with uh, far less interesting sites and some quite mundane sites and uh and generally that is driven if we do that it's driven by the clientele i mean the ownership and who the clientele would be and is it going to be public is there is there something you know do we know the folks who are doing it is it is it something that can produce a product that we think would be popular with people you know that even though it 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 might not be perceived as one of the great sites in the world. Uh, yes, I mean we. Uh, I was asked Derek not not so long ago by a golf writer. He said, "So you know, asked the the question you get so often. Well, if you you know, what's the best course you've ever done? What you what are you the most proud of? Which course are you the most proud of? That sort of thing. But you know, you can talk about all these sites that you just mentioned and the courses they produced." And we are so extraordinarily proud of them. Anytime you're able to work with something like that or produce a course that is perceived to be among the best in the world or the best in the United States, it's it's a huge honor and a huge compliment. By the same token, you can take the two courses that we the two public courses we did in Scottsdale at Talking Stick, you know, on the Native American land there. They were so flat. It's 400 acres. There had one tree on it, and you could put. I'm not exaggerating this. You could put a Coca-Cola can at one end of the 400 acres, go to the other end, take some binoculars, and you could see it. It was there was almost no grade whatsoever. They they gave you a topo map and it had not one line on it. Not one on 400 acres. The only lines were on the ditch that went up through there. And the true Dana Garman and the true golf people, you know, talking sticks been open, I think, about 20 years now. I think this may be their, their 20th year. And Dana said, Garman said, can you build two golf courses, public courses out here that would be different? And they're going, well... Okay, could we do that? So part of it may be the challenge, but part of it was coming off of, uh, we'd worked at the Sand Hills right before that on an extraordinary site, that, and talking stick would be purely theoretical. And and part of it was the fact that it was going to be public. And we said, okay, some people seem to think we only do these private courses. Let's go, let's go do this. It wasn't going to be a re- residential today. It's going to be pure golf. And, and, you know, for 20 years now, Derek, I've driven by that golf course, those golf courses out there. I go out sometimes and play. And I've driven by, and almost invariably, the parking lot is full. And they've told me through all these years that it has extremely high volumes of repeat play, which means people are enjoying it. They're finding it interesting, both courses interesting enough to bring them back. They're enjoying it. They're not losing a lot of golf balls. So that was probably, that was just an abysmal sight. It had no character for golf, no inherent character at all. And yet tens of thousands of people have played golf there through these years, and they continue to go there. And so... Could you not make the argument? Maybe you're just as proud or more proud of that than you are one of these courses that that's 
considered one of the best in the world, but but had every potential for it going known to man. <laughs> so I don't I don't know. Well, I don't know. You but, just uh, you just stole my thunder, Bill, because I was going to mention that Talking Stick North is one of my favorite golf courses, not just of yours, but anywhere in the country. So. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it, Derek. I mean, but but that's what it's about. I mean, we, I think if if we only worked on these sand sites that were extraordinarily gifted sites, you know, we'd probably become very jaded. And so, the ability to work and do in different environments and do different types of courses when when courses become stereotyped, golf architecture loses. And so, whether it's at uh, Johnny Morris's project in Branson, Missouri, which is a beautiful and interesting site, Derek. It is in the Ozark, so it's you know, it's got some pretty extreme elevation changes, but not not on the golf course. And uh but around it. But whether it's that or it's the the landfill in Dallas or Trinity Forest, it's each has its inherent challenges, but each has unless it's talking stick, I guess, but Branson had incredible beauty to complement and showcase and interesting contours. Even the landfill in Dallas, because it had been a construction landfill, not organic, so it wasn't a methane gas issue thing. Uh, But that landfill, it had been illegal, but it had been abandoned for some decades. And so it had settled in all different forms. Even it was interesting in its rumpled nature. And so to have a piece of ground that was obviously has no trees on it, you can't, cannot have trees on a landfill because the root structure breaks the cap down through the, that's, that's protecting the, the landfill. But uh, it had some interesting contours that we then tried to play off of and enhance and use to, to create the golf course. So all the sites are different. And that's one of the great, <laughs> the wonderful things about this profession. You're such a gracious and complimentary man. Let's get uh, negative just for a second. What What is something that you absolutely hate to see on a golf course when you're playing golf or whether you encounter something as a, in the field? What What is something you would hate to have to build or hate to encounter? Well, uh, I guess in, in, in specific areas uh derek i mean to be very specific it would be long travels between greens and tees mm. you know i just that just drives me nuts i mean you go you play a hole and you feel like you you have to travel a quarter of a mile to find another hole those are you know most often dictated by real estate so i'm i'm not a huge fan of golf being used by real estate you know, it's if the two can the two can work beautifully together as long as each one can survive on its own. If the golf is good enough to survive on its own and the real estate is good enough to survive on its own, then they work they can work very well together. But if one is dependent on the other, and that's what's happened, you know, happened for a number of many years of where golf courses were strung out just in order to create real estate frontage. So that that bothers me. Uh, I I have to say, Derek, it's just I, I get very very frustrated when I see extreme amounts of money spent to create not very good courses. 
And sometimes those courses have every bell and whistle and gadget and gizmo and every type of facade they can possibly have to appear to be something special. And yet when you get down to the pure foundation of playing golf and interesting golf, they, they are totally lacking. And so I'm not a big fan of, of uh, visual effects and, and particularly if you have a waterfall and there's a waterfall there, fantastic. Use it. But if you have to spend hundreds of thousands or even more of dollars to create one or some golden gilded looking, you know, <laughs> edifice or effect to say we're special and we're, we're, you know, we're better than, or we're the, we're among the best and there's no real substance to the course after you experience it. I, that, that frustrates me. And, and I'm afraid we've, we went through a period there that that was done far more than it than it should have been. I mean, when you when you can go back to the basic tenets that gave birth to this game in Scotland and then other parts around the world is how do you do something as efficiently as possible? And uh, I think Tom Doak, if I remember correctly, in his confidential guide, uh, seemed like he said something about a maybe a zero rating was something so bad it would poison your mind. And, and from my perspective, maybe getting a zero mm-hmm. is not one that's a little public course somewhere that has no finances or no, not much interest in the ground, but they, they still play golf and everything. Zero to me is you go spend a huge amount of money and build an uninteresting, gaudy golf course. <laughs> I think that is a so. zero in his book. I, something that's so utterly contrived, I think, is or, or is his words. So you and he uh, agree on, on that. Uh, I guess that's a silver lining of the horrible recession, the, the housing market crashes. There doesn't seem to be a real market or desire to build those gratuitous golf courses that were, you know, built in the early 2000 and 1990s. So I guess we can thank the, uh, the economy for that. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose I know it was a very difficult time for so many people and so many people in golf and, and, uh, but yes, I, I'm, I must say today, you see most of the golf courses you see that are coming online or, or, or more back to the basics, and uh, um, and and hopefully, hopefully we'll have a a better, you know, potential for being sustainable both environmentally and financially as time goes by. Bill, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're just getting warmed up, but I, I think we should cut it off right here, even though I only got to about half of the topics I wanted to bring up. Maybe sometime down the line we can do it again, but I, I wanted to thank you so much for your time and, and for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, Derek. Good to talk to you again. I hope our paths cross not too distant future here. So I'm sure. Please take care and stay in touch. Thanks for taking us inside the dangerous and high pressure world of golf course architecture and uh, continued success <laughs> to you. Okay. Thanks so much, Terry. All right. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Bye. Well, all right. I'd like to thank Bill Coor for spending some of his downtime with me. And uh, I hope all my fumbled analogies didn't detract too much from the content of our conversation. You know, Ben Crenshaw is known as Gentle Ben, but that moniker could easily apply to Bill Coor as well. 
He's such a gentleman. Uh, he's gracious with his time, and you know he's arguably one of the most talented architects of all time. The man just oozes with integrity. You know, I, I wasn't kidding about uh, not getting to you know half of the topics I wanted to talk to him about. I had a, another page of ideas and things that we could have discussed. One of the things I'd like to talk to him about and didn't get to was just in general about the width of fairways. Are some fairways getting too wide today? Um, even on some of his courses, where's the line? What's the line between playability and fun and a golf course maybe being a little bit too easy, especially off the tee? Hopefully he'll come back sometime and we can pick up where we left off. I also wasn't kidding about Talking Stick North. That golf course has more spirit and charisma in its first four holes than most golf courses on Flatland do in their entirety. And some great holes. Uh, 12 is a short, almost drivable par 4 plays probably 270, 280 most days, I think. Uh, and it's got two fairways that are bisected by a, a dry gulch. And the left fairway borders out of bounds hard all along the left. You can take a shot at the green with your driver if you're feeling pretty bold, but you've got to kind of thread it through a narrow passage between out of bounds left and the gulch on the right. Or you can play safely out to the right fairway. But that leaves you with a really difficult short pitch across the gulch back into a very shallow green from that angle. And the par 5 second is simply one of the, the greatest basic holes I've ever seen. It's You can hit it anywhere off the tee. The fairway must be about 60 yards wide. You can just blast it. But all the way down the left, really almost just feet off the fairway, is another out-of-bounds straight line all the way to the green. The green is set right up against the out-of-bounds. So if you want to have a good angle into the green, you've got to, on your second shot, kind of flirt with the out-of-bounds on the left. You can play it down the right side, all that room over there, but on your approach shot, you're going to have to hit it over a couple of bunkers with almost nothing to work with and out-of-bounds behind the green. So it's just a fascinating, simple concept, but beautifully rendered. And I'm glad we got to talk about Talking Stick a little bit. Thanks again for joining. Please check out feedtheball.com for upcoming podcast episodes. Also check out thedunkinlist.com for candid course reviews and other features. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Once again, thanks for your time. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. And until next time, cheers.